This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. As we transition towards the sustainable decarbonisation of our world, scientists and experts are playing a key role in helping us navigate what the future will look like. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Allen, a lecturer at the University of Newcastle and an expert in the production and use of hydrogen, including green hydrogen generated with renewable energy resources. Dr. Allen, who has worked as a professional engineer and in academia, is reinventing the way we produce energy and materials and in the face of the uncertainty of climate change is helping us navigate our way forward. So Jessica, we're really excited that you could join us. You're one of the superstars of STEM. So let's go back to the beginning, if you like. You're a chemist at school. Did you love chemistry from the get-go? I liked chemistry uh, and I enjoyed science, Uh, but I think what I really liked um, most in the end was maths. Um, I really enjoyed maths and I enjoyed problem solving. So I actually ended up my undergraduate degree is in engineering. Um, So I did chemical engineering and then I did a PhD in electrochemistry. Um, So my passion wasn't always um, science from the start. It was was more that um, critical thinking, problem solving and um, using maths as a, a way to solve problems. Mm. I mean, we're we're talking here to Women's Agenda and, of course, you know, like I said, you know, you're one of the superstars of STEM in terms of uh, how high profile you are as a female scientist. Do you think that we're doing enough to attract more women into the sciences, into STEM? I think that there – I think we are, that we're getting there. And I think that there's a number of different issues that we need to address. So, One is getting the women there to start with. So we've seen an increase in women doing science and an increase in women doing engineering as undergraduates. Um, But it's not just about originally attracting them to science, um, but retaining them once they get there. Um, We've got a a massive pipeline issue in um, academia um, and in industry uh, where women are there to start with and then we lose them somewhere along the way. Um, So it's really important to increase um, participation from high school, even into primary school to get more women interested in, in joining STEM, definitely. Um, but we also need to get them to stick around and to figure out what is happening that makes us lose all of this talent. Mm, because it's so true. So as you mentioned, you did your PhD in el- electrochemistry. And the, the comment you make there is women essentially, they thin out when it comes to further study in science. What was your experience though? Like, was your experience good? Was your experience bad? How do you reflect back on it? Yeah, I had a good experience in engineering. I enjoyed my degree. Um, I was one of very few women and it it took me a while to realise I never actually considered a career in academia, Um, I think partly because I didn't have any female lecturers. I didn't see any female leaders in engineering in in my discipline. Um, So I never actually thought that I would end up as a lecturer. I never thought I would end up in academia. I thought I would do my PhD, but then probably just go out in, in, into industry. Um, so it, it, it was different for me when I was doing it because there was um, not too bad participation. Chemical engineering, which is the engineering discipline I did, um, had about 30% female participation which for undergraduates, which um, is pretty good for the engineering's actually. Um, but, yeah, as you start to progress through the ranks, uh, that thins out considerably. We actually call it uh, the scissor graph. 
Uh, so I was part of an um, equity and diversity committee for the university last year, and we looked at data across the university, starting at undergraduate level through PhD, um, postdoctoral, which is the next step, and then through the different levels of academia. And what happens is that on average across the university, we actually have more, slightly more female undergraduates than male undergraduates. But there reaches a point generally around sort of early to mid-career that that crosses uh, and it, it drops dramatically from that point. And, and, and what happens at that point, do you think, when that dr- dramatic drop comes in? Is it, is it around carer duties? You know, is there something or are there a few specific things that you think that are happening? I'd say it's related, um, but it's not just about that. It's also, so um, I almost left academia after I had my children. It was hard to get back in. Um, and you definitely have um, major loss of momentum. So what keeps you going in academia is keeping on publishing, keeping getting grants, keeping your PhD students um, doing their research. And if you have to take a, a large break from that, it can be hard to keep that momentum going. Um, so I definitely think that that is part of it, but it's not everything. Um, in engineering, the problem is that we actually start off with the less female undergraduates to start with, and then it drops even more at the end. Um, so you start off low and you end low. It's not a scissor. It's like an alligator or a crocodile. <laughs> and so what is concerning to me, though, is that it's not just when we start off with less women, but even if you start off with more women, they end up being dropped out. And I, I think a lot of it does have to do with it, it's difficult as an academic to make a step from being a postdoc. So what happens is you'll do um, your PhD Um, And then you can do a postdoctoral research position. And those are generally contract positions. And they're working under um, academics who tend to have permanent positions. Uh, Once you go from being a postdoc to an academic yourself, that is the most difficult transition in any academic career because you go from being part of a research group to leading a research group. Um, And it's quite difficult to make that step for any um, researcher. But I think for women in particular, Um, It can be difficult because of these conflicting carer responsibilities, but also because you may not be seen as a a, a leader. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how those biases are so deeply held. Now, you you talked there about how you thought you were going to go to industry. You did actually go to industry, didn't you, for a short period before returning to academia? Um, tell me a little bit about that, and give me some of your observations about moving from academia into industry and then back again. Yeah, so I um, after I finished my PhD, I I'd been doing um, very fundamental sort of blue sky research, which is what we talk about research that doesn't really have a, a specific application at the time, but probably in 20 or 30 years, it'll be quite good. Um, and I decided after I finished my PhD, I had um, offers for postdoctoral positions internationally. So I could have traveled overseas and, and lived and worked elsewhere. But I decided at that time that I wanted to actually see how technology development worked. Um, so the the industry that I chose to work with at the time um, was a renewable energy startup company. Um, so they were trying to commercialise a new technology. They were on the other side of academia. They'd gotten through that research stage and were trying to actually put technology into action. So I really wanted to do that and to try something different. So that's what attracted me um, to industry after my PhD. And what was the experience like? It was amazing. I I loved it in industry. Um, I think there's it's a very different way of 
of thinking when you're working in industry compared to working in academia. So uh, I can't talk for all industries, but I know my experience was that um, it's much more of a team environment. So you're an important part of a team. You're doing a job um, for everyone there. Whereas in academia, it's very much about the lead academic and and what they can accomplish and the grants they can get. So it's working under a person and everything that you accomplish is is for that group, um, which is led by one person. Um, So it can be a little bit less of a team environment, I think, in academia, which I hope will change. Mm. Um, The moment that is still what it is like. Mm. Um, I loved the the teamwork aspect of, of working in industry. Yeah, sounds like there's a little bit there that academia could be learning from in that case. Definitely, I think so, yeah. You talked there about the commercialisation and that's one of the things that you see come up in the conversation in Australia about research and development um, and, and I want your views on this. Do we have good pathways here for the commercialisation of academic research? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky step. It's like the transition from a postdoc to an academic is the transition from a research idea into a commercial technology or to something that is going to be used um, and have impact. Um, I think that it is changing and that that people have realised that academic ideas are getting stuck in publications and um, just people getting grants and publishing and not doing anything with that research. Uh, And there's a lot more uh, emphasis actually, uh, I think even in the last few years on translating research um, we call it the um, <laughs> somewhat facetiously the the valley of death. Um, a research idea has to go through, so it, it starts off as a, a great research idea. You've published all these papers, you've got a great idea of where it will go. Um, you think it'll be a good commercial idea, but by the time you actually get to a commercial real um, thing out in the real world, uh, it has to go through this massive challenge of making sure that it's actually a useful technology or a useful finding. One really important thing is to help academics themselves think differently. So to put the question to academics of uh, where does this research fit in and is it solving a real problem? Uh, So I do a couple of programs um, that I've done through CSIRO on Prime and innovation networks. There's a bit of a startup culture um, here in Newcastle that I'm involved with Uh, where you sort of have to think about what your research is and what you're actually going to do with it. Uh, So finding that real impact for the research that you're doing that might not necessarily be where you thought it was. It's often surprising, actually, the outcome of these sorts of programs. And I think that's really important for academics because we can get really caught up in asking the questions and publishing papers and, and getting grants to publish more papers, which I think that, you know, fundamental research is really important and you never know what the impact or implications of that fundamental less applied research could be but we do need to start really pushing the great ideas out there and we don't want to lose them in the the valley of death between research where research sits and where commercialization is Mm. That sounds to me like a sort of cultural change project almost for academics, because I can imagine that academics love blue sky research fundamental research is that fair? Yeah, they do. And I think that uh, we we need to still embrace that. There is a danger in pushing towards this more applied, commercially driven research that we lose that fundamental uh, basis of understanding the universe that we still need. Um, so I don't, I don't want us to move completely away from that. But I do think that 
we need to make sure all of these great ideas that we have that do have applications find those applications and find them in the best way possible because that's that's how we improve our world. That's how we progress. Mm, there's a balance there, basically. Earlier in the conversation, I heard you say that you were thinking about doing taking a postdoctoral position abroad. Now, that makes me think of a lot of comments I always hear that we don't have a great environment for serious scientists such as yourself here in Australia, and a lot of people get their PhD and go abroad. Is, is that a fair comment or have things changed? I think that it's probably a problem um, all over the world that research uh, isn't valued as much as what it potentially has been. In Australia, we have uh, a problem with funding with universities. So funding has been steadily decreased to universities over the years. And we're now sort of being positioned more as teaching institutions, um, which is great. Like I love teaching and I think it's really important that we train up the next generation Um, But what really pushes research forward is university. So we need to have that balance of research and teaching. uh, And to have that, we need better funding and better support. Uh, I think that that's also an issue in the US and Europe to an extent, but I do think they have better support, especially in Europe, uh, for those early career researchers um, and for progression planning in careers. Uh, it's it's really hard in academia that um, a lot of the early career work is contract based. Um, so you could spend ten years in postdoctoral contra- contracts and never have an opportunity to go for an academic ongoing academic role. And that insecurity it, it does uh, make things quite difficult in planning and thinking long term in terms of your um, your life, but also in terms of your research and really mapping your research through and making sure that you're going, that you're reaching your full potential as an academic. Mm. So talking about full potential, let's move to talking about the work that you're doing now. I know that you've recently been awarded the Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Research Award, which sounds very Mm -hmm. important. (laughs) So so tell us about the the work that you're doing at the moment. Yeah, so I am, uh, so my background, as we've talked about, I'm a chemical engineer and an electrochemist. Uh, So I like to think of myself sort of as an electrochemical engineer, which basically means that I work on things like fuel cells and electrolysis and batteries, all these future critical technologies. Um, The research that I'm doing with my DECRA, which is the acronym for the Discovery Early Career Research Award, um, is around a process and developing a process that solves more than one problem. And I think that that's really important moving forward with technology is that It can't just be very pigeonholed in solving one specific problem. We need to solve more than one thing at a time. Um, So the process that I'm trying to progress with this research uh, takes carbon dioxide as a a feedstock. So it takes that into the process uh, and using energy from renewables, so concentrated solar thermal energy, the heat and the electricity that we can make from the sun, we convert that carbon dioxide into a solid carbon product. So it's a a sequestration pathway. Um, But the important thing about this process is that the carbon that we make um, on the the back end is an advanced material. And you can use that carbon material in things like batteries and supercapacitors that help with storing renewable energy. So I like to think of it as a carbon negative manufacturing process driven by renewables. Mm, because you're taking the CO2 out of the air you're t- and you're turning it into a product that, that can then be actually used within manufacturing processes. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's called um, carbon capture and utilisation. 
Um, and I, I think it's important to make the point that um, carbon capture and storage often gets a, a pretty bad rap in the community because it's seen as a Band-Aid solution. And it definitely can be a crutch to continue business as usual. So we'll just continue burning fossil fuels and then we'll capture the carbon dioxide on the other end, no problem. Uh, it won't actually work like that, in my opinion. And the technologies like the one I'm working on will never be able to meet the emissions on the scale of what we have at the moment. So the, the place for a technology like this is really once we've absolutely cut as many emissions and decarbonize everything that we possibly can, then what's left over at the end, that's what we can then take care of to get to a truly net zero or even potentially a carbon negative um, economy. Mm, yeah, you need many solutions, essentially. There's never, there isn't going to be one solution for this. Exactly. I think that's a danger that we can fall into um, with addressing global emissions and climate change is that there is no one solution, that it, it is a multi-pronged approach. We need more than one thing and it would be very dangerous of us to just depend, depend on one solution. Mm. Now, as someone who's really at the forefront of this and renewable energy and carbon capture, are you excited, uh, I, I guess optimistic maybe is the word I'm looking for, when you look at the new technology that's coming to the fore? I'm definitely optimistic. I, I have been a little bit cynical in the past, but even in the last, I think in the last two or three years, I've seen real momentum gathering. Uh, and I think part of it has been around the tipping point of renewable um, electricity generation like solar um, photovoltaics and wind generation are cheaper to build now than coal-fired power. So that economic driver has really pushed that technology uh, to the forefront and made it a real viable and attractive option. So it's now attractive not just in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions but also economically. So the fact that we now have that technology to start with is a really good place to be. So now as we accelerate that um, and start to roll out electricity generation that is driven by renewables, um, we've solved a big part of the, the puzzle. And, and often it's around the economics. This is my cynical side coming out that it's all very well and good to want to aim to reduce emissions and we should be doing that. But without really strong political leadership uh, in that area, it has to be driven by economics. And companies are doing that now. So we're seeing uh, from a number of different, even large fossil fuel dependent com companies have acknowledged that the world is shifting. Uh, and they are trying to shift with it. They don't fully know what to do yet from what I've seen, um, but they want to. And they're coming up with solutions and ways to address uh, carbon emissions and leading towards decarbonisation. Mm. You make me excited when I'm when I'm listening to you, so I'll keep my optimistic hat on. Now, <laughs> now, now I'm a layperson in this, so explain it to me. Yeah. So I I read the papers, and you know the the, the overarching argument I seem to see about renewable renewable energy is yes, we've got renewable energy, and it's becoming cheaper. And we always talk about Australia in terms of its access to sunshine, etc. Should really be a leader in this area. But the other side of the argument is that we will, and and this is just what I read, so you you can correct me. You know, we will kind of always need coal because we need coal for baseload. What is that argument? How should I read it? Uh, it's a little bit of a fallacy, um, to be honest. So um, there's always this idea that we need baseload backup but um, because we always have baseload need. We always have baseload demand for energy. Um, but really, energy use over a day um, and over a season is variable. 
So our, our use of energy varies quite a lot. Um, and we also have now these variable energy generators coming online. So we've got solar, which obviously peaks in the middle of the day. Um, but then we've got wind energy, which tends to peak more towards the afternoon and even overnight because of temperature differences with the land and the, the sea when they're um, located on shore. Um, so those, yes, they are variable, um, but it's not so much about um, trying to make sure that we've got a base load. It's about matching the demand with what we're generating. Um, so there's obviously going to be cases and we we have to manage this very carefully that um, when we don't have the sun shining or when we don't have the wind blowing, what are we going to do? So it's about figuring out that storage, the energy storage aspect of energy supply. And we have a lot of great solutions already in that area. So we have energy storage in batteries, including large-scale grid um, batteries, and also a lot of interest in developing our pumped hydro uh, facilities. Uh, so really managing variable resources isn't about having a base load and then just peaking your solar when you need it or peaking your wind when you need it. It's about thinking about the total demand that is needed and matching to that need. Can you foresee a day then when we don't use coal, for example? Yeah, I do. I think that we're heading quite strongly in that direction. I've seen reports that suggest that with the technologies we have already, including um, battery storage, pumped hydro, solar and wind, these commercial technologies, uh, that we can pretty much get to about 80% emission reduction without investing in any new technologies. Just using those existing technologies, we can pretty much replace most things that we already have. Now, the last, 80, the last 20% is the difficult part, um, which needs new technologies and new approaches, um, but we already have what we need to get most of the way. Listening to you, like I said, makes me really optimistic, which is great. What do you think about the climate change debate, though, that's played out in the in the larger arena, on in the media, for example? What do you see that as really being about? I think that actually in the last couple of years that that debate has shifted. Um, it, it could be a bit of an echo chamber where I'm in, working in renewables and low emission, but the story isn't so much about climate change is climate change real, uh, it's not the debate over whether you uh, believe the science of climate change. It's about whether you understand the science of climate change. And what people are more concerned about now is how we decarbonise and what technologies we should be using to decarbonise. From what I've seen, especially on a sort of government level, even uh, internationally in Australia, it's accepted that we need to decarbonise. Large fossil fuel companies accept that we need to decarbonise. The debate is now around how we do that. Is there also still, do you think, an ongoing debate about the impact on the economy from making that kind of transition? Yeah, there is. Uh, and, it, and it's about um, Australia, when you look at our coal, so we generate a, a lot of electricity from coal in New South Wales, that's dropping. Um, but when you look at how much coal we export, it absolutely dwarfs how much we use. So we are a huge exporter of coal. Um, and so it is scary to think about the fact that that export uh, might not be there for too much longer. Um, but what we're seeing in Australia is that potentially before we are ready to stop selling it, people are going to stop buying it. 
And that's really dangerous for us to position our economy around an export of something that is suddenly not going to have a market. Um, and we're seeing that from all of our global partners. It, look, it's not going to happen overnight. It's mm. not going to happen overnight that we, the world will just stop using coal. It's a transition. But I think we're already in that transition period. It has already started. So what we need to be doing is thinking about what can we replace that export with and how can we make sure that the people who work in those industries are going to be transitioned into new low emission industries. Mm. Yeah, and I always think that's the point. Like what's the transition? Because during that transition, some people will not transition. You know, they wouldn't transition to new jobs, for example, you know, and, mm. and how, how do you how do you look after those people yeah. um, during that during that kind of change? Definitely. And the, the Grattan Institute released a, a fantastic report about um, green steel actually that compared the regions where there's a large amount of coal mining and um, coal washeries, et cetera, um, and comparing that with where, whether they could transition those workers with the same sort of skills into a new low-carbon uh, industry such as green steel, and they found that it was actually quite well matched. So mm. as long as we're – I think what people maybe don't realise about um, Australia's potential is that what we really want to see happen is that Australia will actually start to use – and produce more electricity because we have these renewable resources and we have the technology to capture that as electricity. Um, but then what we want to do is use that electricity to make products. So make things like hydrogen um, to make steel, green steel, or to make clean hydrogen for ammonia generation. Um, and, and we actually want to make products that we can then export. So decarbonizing manufacture. Um, and that means that we need more electricity. So, and to be green, that electricity has to come from renewables. Mm, we're a lucky country once again. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, you're renowned for speaking sort of publicly about science. Um, and I know you've participated in programs that help scientists to communicate better about ideas. In this period where, you know, you're right, I think the discussion about climate change has moved. But do you think the way scientists tell stories is such an important part of it? Do you think science has got better at telling its story? I think it has. And I think that science communication is starting to be valued more. Um, certainly what I've seen lately, there's a lot of new programs about being able to communicate science uh, and helping to helping researchers to understand how to talk about their research in a way that people can understand. So I think that everyone in the academic community can see the impact of what good science communication can do. Uh, and there's, you know, a lot happening in that area. It's not accepted by everyone. Um, and I think there's a lot of ingrained academics out there who think you should be focusing all of the efforts on just publishing papers for an academic audience rather than trying to talk about your research to a broad general audience. But we've seen this, the debate over climate change and renewables and green energy, I think, has highlighted the importance of talking about these technology options because there is a lot of confusion out there. So we really need to help people understand if we want to have better outcomes for the planet. That was fantastic, Jessica, and thank you. And thank the rest of you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was produced by the ever-excellent Alison Ho, and if you enjoyed the episode, then make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast player and please leave us a rating. To hear more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au, and I'm looking forward to hosting you in the next episode.
Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.